Hello and welcome to Midpoint. It is the last episode of the series and when I told my husband Kenny who today's guest is, he said he's not in midlife, is he? Well, technically he's not. He's what you might say is uh, the upper end when it comes to his actual birth age. But his youthfulness, his zest for life and his curiosity plus a lifetime of showbiz shenanigans meant I could not resist when he said yes. And he might just indulge us with all the secrets of his seemingly eternal youth. I bring you Richard Maidley. For a generation of us, he is Richard and Judy in the same way that Ant is Ant and Deck, and he's this morning, and he's presented everything in between, hasn't he? From Have I Got News For You, to the BBC Radio 2 Breakfast Show, standing in for Chris Evans, and tons and tons of other shows. And recently, of course, uh, had that short trip into the castle for I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. He's also tipped to be the regular replacement for Piers Morgan on Good Morning Britain, so we'll have a little chat about that. Today's episode is, of course, sponsored by Solgar, with more than 300 products that bear the hallmark of the gold label and distributed in over 60 countries around the globe. Solgar is trusted by millions of their customers. So head over to the Solgar store, solgar.co.uk, to shop their gold standard vitamin range and use Midpoint as your code and you'll get 30% off. OK, let's chat to Richard. Richard, thank you so much for doing this. Pleasure. But first of all, I have to ask you how you are after your castle escapades. <laughs> well, it all looked highly dramatic, didn't it? You know, sort of dawn dash to hospital and stuff. I mean, it, it's a great way of getting the sympathy vote, I'll tell you. <laughs> um, it, was, it was nothing. I think basically I got dehydrated. I have a tendency to get dehydrated. I've noticed it before. It happened to me a few years ago. What I try and do every night when I go to bed, I have a great big glass of water. I drink about a litre of water. And on this occasion, I did not because uh, I was so tired. We, we'd all, I think, we don't have watches in, in the castle, but I, we reckon we'd been up for about 20 hours working and doing stunts and all the rest of it. And we reckon we got into bed at about half past four in the morning um, and it's freezing there. And I just snuggled into my, my sleeping bag and, I, was, and I, was, I could feel myself drifting off. And I suddenly remembered I hadn't had my nightly drink of big drink of water and my water bottle was there. But because it was so cold and I was snuggled in, I thought, I just can't be arsed getting out again and getting out in the cold and finding the water bottle. I'll have a drink when I, when I go to the loo in a couple of hours. And the next thing I knew, I was sitting up in bed feeling very weird. Um, I, I, but I, I, it kind of rang a bell. I thought, ah, oh, this, is, this is the dehydration thing. And I was just basically a bit confused. I wasn't quite sure where I was, what was going on. You know, just almost like I'd been punched in the head. They chucked me in an ambulance and took me to the local hospital, which was only about 15 minutes away. And by the time I got there and had a cup of tea, I felt normal. And I had blood tests. And then I saw a consultant who came in and said, well, you, you look fine. And these tests are fine. There's nothing wrong with you. And we talked it through and we reckoned it was dehydration. And he said, well, just make sure you, you drink more. And I, I'm very happy for you to go back and carry on with the show. And me and my wife will be watching you tonight and all of that. So it was all a storm in a teacup. But the penny hadn't dropped. But because I'd, I'd left the COVID bubble, I couldn't go back in because I just might have picked the virus up, you know, the, the COVID virus up. And that would be a disaster for the programme. If, if, if I'd gone back in, which was against all the protocol, once you're out of the bubble, you're out of the bubble. If I'd gone back in and I had been carrying the bug and somebody had gone down with it, then everybody would have would have been at risk, and they would have had to pull the series. And you know, well, talk- it turned out, Richard, that a storm would come in that week. Storm came in that <laughs> night. So, in fact, my last day was the last day for the next four days. You know, um, so yeah, that was it. So I, you know, although I really wanted to, I couldn't go back in the castle, and I had to come back to London. So it was it was a shame, but but I, I, I had a good week there, and I really enjoyed it. I had a you know I. I established what I wanted to establish, which was to kind of scratch my kind of curiosity itch about what it's like to do I'm a Celebrity, get me out of here. And I was mm-hmm. there for a good week. So I kind of, I got that. So I'm, I'm, I'm happy, I'm fine. 
Yeah, but I think a lot of us watching are very sad because I think you are going to you're going to be there for a long time. I think you're <laughs> going to be there until the end. So I think we're all a little bit disappointed. But I'm glad that you're in good health. And yes. now, Richard, this podcast is called Midpoint, right? So technically, I said to my husband last night, he said, "Who's on? Who's on this week?" And I said, "Richard Mailey." And he said, "Is he still in midlife?" And I said, "Well, technically, Richard's gone out of the the technical age range." I right? was Which thinking I'm, that, yeah. <laughs> but I said. To me, age doesn't define Richard Maidley. So he's the perfect person, I think, to come on and kind of talk about mindset with regard to that, because you have such enormous energy and enthusiasm for everything you do. It's infectious. And I think that is, for me, becoming, I've done about 32 episodes of this now, and I think that is the, almost the key to having a good, longer life and what happens in later life. Would you, would you agree? I, it resonates completely. Just out of interest, what are your parameters? I mean, I'm 65. Well, they're so... not mine, Richard. They're All not right. mine. The, the Economic and Social Research Council, because when I started this, I wanted to do it properly, Richard. Oh, and okay. uh, they say it's 38, which shocks a lot of younger people, to 54. Um, yeah, um, but I, I've been keen for a while to get rid of the 54 because I think there's a lot to be learned from people who've gone through a successful midlife and it would appear that you navigated yours well. Well, I think part of that is pure luck, isn't it? And so far, so good. I haven't had any serious illness. And that's what starts to drag people down, isn't it? Um, Kind of age-related problems, which, you know, you don't get in your 30s or 40s, or maybe even in your early 50s, but which do start to knock at the door as you move through your 60s and towards your 70s. And so far... I've been lucky. I'm still basically as fit and healthy as I was when I was 40. You know, they will come and get me in the end. But currently, I'm okay. So that's luck. And I suppose that's having good genes. And, and, my, and my mother, who died uh, several years ago, she was in her, in her mid-80s, she looked and sounded and behaved 20 years younger all her life. Nobody ever believed that mum was the age she was. She just had really good Scottish genes. She was a McEwen. Uh, she was, you know, the daughter of pioneer stock who went out and uh, and. and built new lives for themselves in Canada on the frontier as it was then. And uh, yeah, good genes. So again, that's luck. And I think the third thing, as far as I'm concerned, just going back to, to your kind of summary of the way I come over, I suppose, I think that's the job. And I think that you can't be in the kind of journalism that I've been in all my life. You know, I mean, I breaking news, basically. And obviously, I've, I've had a foot in lots of other TV camps and radio camps. But essentially, essentially, I'm a hack. You know, I joined the local newspaper when I was 16 years old. I left school early against all my plans. I was going to go to university and do an English degree and maybe get a graduate training placement on, on a, the Guardian or the Telegraph, something like that. But I ended up getting a summer job on the local paper and they offered me a full-time job. So by the time I was 19, I'd, I'd qualified. I was, I was a qualified journalist, you know, in the National Council for the Training of Journalists. And I've always been in news, I, I, in local radio and then in regional television, border television and Yorkshire television and then Granada where I met Judy on the nightly news show. And even this morning, when we were doing it, and it's, it's evolved quite a lot since Judy and I left this morning, but this morning had a strong journalistic kind of quotient to it. We did a lot of breaking news on the show. You know, popular breaking news. Not, not sort of serious politics, but popular breaking news. And we could both do that because we were both trained journalists, you know. So when we were doing this morning, and I'm not saying this made it any better, it, it was just a bit different, it had much more of a journalistic edge to it. And then since we, then we did, took that to Channel 4 for a few years, and now Judy stepped back from television and, and I've ended up at Good Morning Britain, you know, which is straight news, you know. So I think if you are working in breaking news and every day you're reading the papers, uh, you're going online, you're keeping abreast of, of breaking news and developments, because you have to, because you might be doing an interview about it in half an hour's time, it kind of keeps you match fit. You know, it, it keeps you aware 
of modern life. It plugs you in. So I think that's the environmental factor in, in the person that I am. It's, it's my job. It's, it's the fact that I'm genuinely curious and interested in current affairs and breaking news. And I think that kind of, kind of, keeps, you, kind of keeps you young. Mm-hmm. You're with you're with what is happening. You're totally kind of aware of what's going on. You yes. have that sense of present. You know, you're yes. you're present in the present day. The flip side of that, of course, is the way that news is now broadcast to us is creeping anxiety that can come from that kind of you know insatiable appetite. I've had to sometimes turn. I have talk radio on a lot when I'm at home. I sometimes have to turn it off because. It's just that kind of repetitiveness of those stories that seem kind of so overwhelming. So how do you deal with that? Because, you know, breaking news by its definition is often quite tragic and there's often quite huge ramifications. But you have such a a cheery disposition. Well, I think you have to self-edit. I mean, I know exactly what you mean about the repetitive nature of the 24-hour news cycle. Uh, And if you're not careful, you can become sort of addicted to it. And it's not a good addiction. And you're quite right. It's it's not good for the soul. And it's certainly not good for your anxiety levels. And I think uh, over time, you learn to filter. So, for example, I will listen to, say, a a large chunk of the Today programme. And then I'll flip over and I'll listen to Julia Hartley Brewer on talk radio and get her take on, on the world and what's going on. And obviously that's a lot feistier and, uh, and sexier, you know, in, in, in the journalistic sense. And then really, that's me done until lunchtime. I'm not going to be dipping in and out of the, of the talk, of the talk radio, radio stations, because really all they're going to be doing is regurgitating what I already know. Um, I'll have a quick listen to the lunchtime news, say The World at One, or I'll watch, if I'm in the house, I'll, I'll watch one of the TV bulletins, ITV, ITV or, or BBC One, but very often not to the end because I'm aware that, okay, I'm still getting the regurgitated stuff that I heard in, in the morning. And then my next port of call is going to be the evening news. Um, now, I do watch all those quite religiously, as, as does Judy. I, I, I don't not watch them. But, but, out, but apart from that, and apart, obviously, from when a story is breaking and, and it is evolving through, through the day... That's that's me done, and I don't I don't compulsively go back and switch on the news every every hour or anything like that because of exactly what you say. You can find yourself sucked into a kind of a maelstrom of, of actually overinflated um, reporting. You've got to you've got to watch it. Do you know where it goes back to? I think, uh, or the the kind of the current guys. You think back to nine eleven that day when we were all completely glued to our screens and our radios, and. Um, we started seeing these straps of breaking news because there was there was actual breaking news happening that day with regard to you know information about that they were receiving from the FBI, all that kind of stuff, and it was proper breaking news. And now it feels to me like breaking news is not breaking news anymore when they have those straps running at the, at the bottom of a story. It feels like it's become overused, and and it, and it's it's kind of almost used to get you kind of in this heightened sense of you know urgency anxiety that you have to be there and I, I totally agree with you and it's it, it, and it's quite cynical and it is done mm. it's, it's, a, it's a professional trick um and it's basically clickbait isn't it I mean mm. you know so, so many of those straps that you're talking about they are clickbait and they're and they're t- and if you're watching online they're to get you to click on and, and go deeper and then of course you get exposed to commercials and advertising and influencing and all the rest of it mm. so again I share your cynicism um and, and I think a, a, a lot of what perhaps 20 years ago would have been genuine attempts to keep you abreast of breaking news are now nothing of the kind. And how much would you, if you sit down with GMB for a you know a pre-show meeting or you're having a call the night before with your producer, how much influence would you have on those kinds of tactics to keep viewers in? Do you feel now at your position and what you've done in your career that your your voice, you know, you could almost overrule an editor and say, I just think we're pushing this agenda too hard? Um, I, that hasn't, it's a good 
good question. I can't recall that happening because the nature of Good Morning Britain is it moves so quickly uh, and there's so much to pack in that, that using that using news items and, and headlines and straps, as, as, as I just described it as clickbait, doesn't really arise because you're, you're actually being driven by the agenda rather than setting it. I feel very much on a, on a show which is about breaking news and setting the day's agenda like, like Good Morning Britain. You're actually following the agenda rather than setting it. I, I, I know it's, it's a kind of a conceit for broadcasters to say that they set the agenda, but actually I think it's your job to report the agenda and, and, and not have that kind of arrogance. In terms of selling a story... Yeah, I'm good at that. I know how to, if you like, how to write a headline. I know how to write an intro. And if I'm, you know, qu- quite often, if, I, if I'm given a script, and this goes back years, whether it's on Channel 4 or, or this morning, and I'll look at a script and I think, no, 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 that's not the angle. Or that's a bit general. There's a much better way to hook people's interest in. And it's not, it's not conning people. It's simply blowing a little trumpet, basically, and saying, da-da-da-da, listen to this, because this is really interesting. In, in, in my book, the key moment in, in, in many uh, sort of elements of a, of a Good Morning show is your opening question in the interview. If you like, that does sort of set an agenda. You know, you can actually set the tone of an interview with that first question. And very often it should be a very simple one, a very, very simple one, a simple why. But most of the, for want of a better word, tricks that I use in telling stories in, in, in links or in, in interviews, I learned in the first three years of my career. I learned it on the, on the Brentwood Argus and on the East London Advertiser. I learned it in how to write an intro. I mean... I think I think local newspaper journalism was a, of a much higher standard then. I mean, and you certainly had a, a, a lot more staff on local papers, and there were more local papers. I remember once, um, it's, it's the subs and newspapers who write headlines, but occasionally you try your hand. And I remember, I remember once my editor coming out, I've never forgotten this, with a, white, with a whiteboard. He said, Richard, you can't write headlines because you, you don't understand brevity. And I said, what? And in front of the whole office, he put this whiteboard up. He said, right, okay. And he wrote on this board, Fresh fish sold here. That's what he wrote. Fresh fish sold here. He said, right, there's too many words, so how, how are we going to cut it down? I said, um, well, um, and he said, well, okay. He said, we're not going to be selling old fish, are we? So we can lose fresh because we we, we're not going to be selling smelly fish. So we'll lose fresh. So fish sold here. Right. What else can we lose? Well, we can lose here, can't we? Because it's obviously here because this is the shop. We sell it here. So we'll lose here. So fish sold. Well, we're not giving it away, are we? Right? So we can lose. So you're left with fish. That's all you need. That's all you need. And it was, and I've never forgotten it. Little kind of lessons of prince of journalistic principle like that still stand me in good stead now today, you know, what's nearly 50 years on. And you going, digging down a little bit deeper for us there and giving us an insight into kind of how you started, actually bringing you full circle almost to what you're doing on GMB because that's a, there's a serious news agenda as well as all the stuff that you probably learnt um, on this morning, which brought in topics that perhaps, you know, that young journalist would never have come across, you know, whether it was women's issues fashion. and relationships and fashion. Yeah. I always wanted to hear your take on the latest bell bottom or whatever the gene <laughs> of the day was. But, you know, those things actually now will bleed into Good Morning Britain, obviously, won't they, in terms of human interest? Yes. The thing about presenting Good Morning Britain is that, you it's you know, most journalists can do a reasonable fist of a political interview or a hard news interview. I mean, if, if they can't, they shouldn't be in the, in the game. But something like Good Morning Britain is so much more than that. I mean, it's about, you know, you're go- you are going from a major breaking news story to a dancing rat in a bottle. You know, you're going from <laughs> you're going from from a, 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 a political report from Westminster and an interview with the government minister of the day to kittens um, uh, or to a stupid competition with a ridiculous question and the lovely Andy Peters prancing all over the screen, making everybody laugh. Um, the gear changes are abrupt 
on shows like Good Morning, and I love that. And it was the same. It was the same on this morning. I like that challenge. I like feeling that I can embrace that kind of content. That I can go from a story that journalistically genuinely excites me and interests me, and I'm really curious about. And then, yes, as I say, asking now, here's here's today's competition questions. You know, stand by your beds. It's worth six hundred thousand pounds, and here we go. I, I like those gears. That's like driving around a kind of a, a, ch- a chicane-strewn race course. It's good fun. So, excuse me if, if this has been officially announced and I, I've missed it. Are you now officially the new anchor of Good Morning Britain? No, it's that's what's been p- published, and it's a sort of it's 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 putting two and two together and getting four and a half. Basically, I, I was I was sitting in for Piers from about 2017 mm-hmm. when he went away, and I was meant to do quite a lot in what turned out to be the first year of lockdown because I think he was due to go and film in America. So I had quite a lot in the diary, but then COVID happened and Piers didn't go anywhere. So I actually I wasn't used on the show for about a year, and then Piers had his wobble and uh, and left, and they and they they called me back, and they got me to do more and more of them, and the press got. You know, the press are looking for the story. Who is the new Piers Morgan? Well, the answer to that is one, there is never going to be a new Piers Morgan because Piers is unique. You know, there's nobody broadcast like him. And secondly, ITV are just taking their time about about the, the lineup and the, the, the presenting lineup. What they have done is they've come back to me and said that they'd like me, they, they'd like to kind of guarantee me a, kind of a minimum number of programmes running all the way through to next June. Now, that is a big commitment in terms of, of what I've been working to so far. So f- up until now, I've been doing maybe four or five weeks ahead, and that's as far as I've known. But now I do know that I'm going to be doing, they're going to be a minimum number of shows, which is, which is plenty for me, uh, all the way through January July, and, and to June. Getting up at, what, three in the morning? No, I get up at, I, listen, I push it back. I get up at 4.30. <laughs> Do you? Yeah, I get up at four thirty. So, and just to finish the answer to your question, so yeah, I'm, yeah. so yes, I'll be doing more, and I'll be yeah. more prominent, and you'll see a lot more of me on the show. But I'm, but I still haven't, you know, I've, I haven't asked for, and I've not been given a, like a two, three year contract, you know, to the, right. You know, okay, I, it's not like that. But I am doing more. People, is it fill a vacuum, don't they? They're like, oh, we need to know this. What you know is this? And also, there's that kind of perennial conversation about whether Piers is coming back or not. So once somebody, oh, he's says, not coming back. There's no, no, obviously. But you know, once once they say this is the new person, yeah. um, but that's. Kind Kind of almost a bit myopic, isn't it? It's a bit TV tittle tattle, isn't yes, it? it? You is. know, it's you're that kind of right. industry gossip. But what I'm fascinated in uh, or by is that you in your mid sixties are—I mean, four thirty is still early, Richard, right? Um, but you're in your mid sixties and you're taking on the commitment to do something which is, you know, tiring. It's tiring getting up like that. It's tiring being that, and you've obviously got the energy. Uh, to do it. Would you have, if you, young Richard or even Richard of, of this morning, would he have foreseen himself doing a role like this? No, and I would have been less inclined to do it because the one thing, I'm every, everyone's different, but I certainly found as I get older that I need less sleep. I mean, I, you know, I used to absolutely have to have eight hours sleep a night. Now I'm perfectly okay with six, you know. Uh, and, and yeah, I mean, 4.30, you're right, is early, but it's not the middle of the night. I regard anything after four is early in the morning. Anything pre-four is the middle of the night. Most of my co-presenters, particularly the women, and you know, I, I just go and have a bit of cream puff on my nose and, and, and go into the studio. And that's that's just being a bloke. So I just literally roll up. I have a shower and wash my hair the night before. I shave the night before. So I just have to roll into my jeans, make some tea for Judy, and I leave that in a flask for her in the, in, in the bedroom. And I'm at television centre at five past five. It's 20 minutes at that time in the morning. I go into Susanna's dressing room with the producer at half past five. We have about a 25-minute run through of what's going to be in the show. We update a few things, make a few tweaks and alterations. I have a last read of my briefs and then we're in studio at quarter past six and then we go on air, the, you know, the, the main presenting team at 6.30 and we finish at nine. Yes, it's tiring, 
But honestly, I wouldn't do it if I didn't love it. You know, I've had my career. I've had my career arc. And I'm having a little second, second wave now, which I, which I didn't look for. It's just sort of, sort of happened. But I only do it because I enjoy it. And you're home by 10 o'clock and then the day's mm. yours. And so, you know, on a sunny day, you can be out in the countryside having yeah. a lovely pub lunch, you know. How does Judy feel about, um, she clearly, would, if she wanted to be working, Judy Finnegan would be working on telly, right? So it's her choice to, to not be doing telly with you anymore. How does she feel about you carrying on and being so immersed and entrenched in the business that you once both dominated? Well, I don't, unless she's putting on a good act, I think she's fine with it. I think if I came home and said, I've actually just signed a contract to do Good Morning Britain four mornings a week, 10 months a year for the next two and a half, three years, I think she might blink a bit. But it isn't that. The, the most I do is three days a week, Monday, which is what Piers used to do, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. That leaves me four days free. That means we can go down to Cornwall. Um, I can leave her in Cornwall. I can nip back and do two or three days next week and then go back down again. It's, it's manageable. I've got to do something with my time. You know. Do you miss working with her? Yes. We met in the newsroom. We got to know each other sitting behind the Granada Reports presenting desk every night when Granada Reports was a much bigger show like all the ITV regional shows used to be. They used to be pretty big shows mm-hmm. because they were, part of the IT, they were part of that regional company's bid to have their franchise renewed every eight years or whatever mm-hmm. it was, you know. And that's all gone now. There's just one ITV, one monolithic ITV. So the importance of regional programming just isn't as, as great as it was. But when, when Judy and I were doing, say, Granada Reports with the, the late, great Tony Wilson, he was another of the three presenters, Mr. Manchester, it was a big show with a big budget and lots of reporters and, you know, and a big studio. And it may have only been regional, but it was it was a big show. And, and I think Judy, we call it proper telly. Proper Richard, telly, we, we call it. That's telly. exactly right, proper telly. <laughs> and, of course, being Granada, it was so exciting, you know, you'd come out of the studio or you'd go into the studio and, you know, you'd be walking past Coronation Street stars, you know, on their way to and from makeup or their dressing rooms. And there was, or, you know, a great drama was being shot and you'd see the, you know, Jeremy Brett was, you know, making uh, Sherlock Holmes and you'd see all these huge stars around the place. And all that's kind of diminished a bit now. So, yeah, Judy and I met in a very glamorous place back then in the 1980s. And slowly we, we sort of fell in love. And actually, Granada separated us. They, they, they thought that uh, uh, they actually thought the opposite of what they would come to think with this morning. They felt somehow it was uh, unhealthy for a couple who were married, or certainly to begin with living together and then married and having kids, to sort of be a double act. They, I don't know whether there was a kind of intellectual snobbishness about it. It was very odd. And they split us up and Judy did her programmes and, and I did mine. And then this morning came along and they kind of, the scales fell from their eyes and they thought, God, this is a, this is a lifestyle stroke news programme and we've got a married couple with four kids here who are professional broadcasters. Of course we, of course we want to put them together. And Judy and I had always loved working together. Um, it was all part and parcel of the chemistry, I suppose, between us. So yeah, when this morning came along, it, it just felt so natural, and it was and it was real. It was a it was a we didn't we weren't putting it on. We weren't pretending to have a relationship. We weren't. It wasn't an on screen only relationship. It was real and seamless. You know. So we'd drive across from our house in Manchester. Then Nanny would come to look after the kids at six in the morning. We'd race over to Liverpool. We might have been having a row in the car, and the row would continue into <laughs> rehearsal. You know, and people could and viewers could tell that they quite often. This is in the days before social media. They'd ring in and they say they've had a row, haven't they? And we had. They were always right. Um, so it was there was a kind of a seamless quality to it, and it was it was real. We kept it real. So of course, working with her was a unique experience, and of course, I miss it. But. I always knew that, and I've said this publicly before, though, so I'm not sort of, you know, breaking any confidences, that Judy was the most reluctant television presenter on the planet. She enjoyed the actual process of what we did. 
she enjoyed a good interview, and it was like a privilege today to interview Hillary Clinton or Bill Clinton. We had exclusives of both of them on this morning. And later on, on Channel 4, she enjoyed the moment of live broadcasting, but she just hated all the attendant publicity that goes with it, the interviews you have to do, the silly headlines you have to read about yourself and all the rest of it, and the intrusion, you know, the obvious intrusion. I, I was always more sort of phlegmatic about that. Judy really didn't like it. And the fact that she doesn't have to do that anymore and doesn't have to put up with that anymore is a to her a major blessing and, and therefore she doesn't miss she doesn't miss her TV career at all. And she loves writing and she loves the book club and you've got grandchildren. We've got three grandchildren, you, yeah. Yeah, got life going on beyond telly, as you know you should. And the love though that I think that there was for you two, because of what you just pointed to there, the, the reality people could see. This is a real married couple. To work with your wife and keep the passion and keep the joy which appeared to be in your in your family life and your marriage. You know, that's an amazing achievement anyway, but to do it in kind of such a public way. Have you ever looked back and kind of almost wondered, gosh, how did we how did we do that? How did we get through that? Yes, particularly in the earlier years of this morning, when the kid when the kids were so young. I mean, Chloe was a baby. She was about five months old and Jack was about a year and a half old. And I look back now, and yes, we had a nanny who would come and take over. Obviously, you know, we had to have somebody to look after the kids, and she'd get them ready for nursery and stuff in later years for school. Basically, we would then do the show, we'd have our post-program meeting, and we would usually be home by mid-afternoon, and the nanny would go, and that was it, and we would take over. And, you know, that involved particularly to begin with doing the night feeds, you know, for Chloe and getting up with a bottle of warm milk and stuff, and then getting up at, you know, five o'clock in the morning to get ready to go and do this morning in Liverpool. And when I look back, I don't know how we did it, you know, I mean, because you know what it's like having having young babies even if you've got help when you're at work but you don't you know we didn't have a living nanny when we were at home we were totally hands-on I look back on it now and thinking maybe getting up three times in the night to to, to feed Chloe and maybe Jack a bit in the earlier days and you're still married and stayed stayed married (laughs) absolutely but I mean speaking for myself I've you know I I always look on the positive side of things. I just can't help that. That's the way I'm conformed, you know. And I all, even though sometimes it was knackering, I always thought, and this, this sounds like a thing that people say in, in television, but I really mean it. It was a privilege. I mean, some mornings going over there to Liverpool and then later when we did it, when we moved down to London and we went down to the South Bank and we were, were actually on the South Bank. It wasn't a kind of a pretend picture behind us like it is now. We really were, you know, on the banks of the Thames. It, it felt like an honour some, some days. And, and also to, to be part of a sometimes a huge national debate and dialogue. I mean, I vividly remember Jack knocking on the bedroom door and poking his head in and saying, Diana's dead. I said, what? He said, Diana. And we, we misheard him and we thought he said Diane, who was our editor at the time, and we thought he was telling us that our editor had died. It was horrible. And then we realised he was talking about Princess Diana. And for us, that meant an extraordinary day of preparing for the next day's show because it was going to be all about Diana. Mm-hmm. And I, did, I do remember at the end of that week feeling, again, a, a sense of privilege that we'd been allowed to be a part of something which we will all still talk about, you know, in mm-hmm. years to come. And I remember several times, actually, one or other of us would actually find ourselves having to pull back tears, you know, because, you know, this was a real person who died. On the other hand, it was a huge public interest story and it was a privilege to be, to, to be able to cover it. Mm. And Judy, um, obviously, was always an equal weight with you, an equal partnership with you on on air, which was unusual because I think it's taken a long time for for that evolution for women in those double-handers where, you know, the man would always lead and the woman's role was kind of... Whereas you and Judy had this 
incredibly 50-50 equal weight. You know, there was no story that was, you know, too big for the woman to handle ever. Your respect for Judy was always shone through. And that's one thing that I kind of have always admired about the way you work together, you know, your respect for her, not just professionally, but as a woman, you know, and I think it's, it's a reason why women like you so much, Richard, I think. Well, that was easy because Judy is, is, is was and is incredibly impressive. I mean, Judy was the first female reporting face on Anglia Television. She was a reporter on Anglia Television back in the 70s when she had Tom and Dan, the twins, and then went back to work. And she was Anglia Television's first female face on screen, apart from continuity. You know, she was the first news reporter, you know, mud on her boots, going out covering stories. You know, Judy's a proper journalist. If I had ever in any way patronised Judy or attempted to sort of gain some kind of ascendancy because of my gender, uh, it would have been a very short-lived partnership. You'd have known about it. Um, You'd yeah, have known about it. Known about it. <laughs> and, and, but also, I mean, I'm glad you've, you pointed it out because we had to we had to stay on top of that. I mean, from time to time, you get a new producer who'd come in and uh, let's say they were producing three shows on the trot. And on day two, I was down to open the show again. I was doing the opening link and Judy was doing the second link. And we would change that. Um, and, and, and very often, you know, I would be the one to change. I, I didn't want her to have to do it. Um, so, so I would say, no, hang on, hang on, hang on. I opened the show yesterday. That's, that's Judy's link. Or we'd get to a point in the show where I'd gone into the first interview, whoever it was, and then the link was written so that I was going into the next interview. It, it didn't happen very often, but when it did, we always pulled it out and changed it. And so I said, no, no, or, or Judy would say, to actually, I think I'll be going into that interview, and I'm, I would never demur. Because, it, because if, it, if it didn't work that way, I would have felt guilty and she would have been very unhappy. Um, and occasionally you still see it happening and it, it still makes me grind my teeth when I see it because it's stupid. I'm going to do a kind of this morning gear change slightly, although not completely because Judy has talked publicly about having a horrible menopause and the conversation, this this midpoint podcast was not started to talk about menopause, but we've had some brilliant episodes where we've had Caroline Harris, the MP, who's put the menopause bill through Parliament recently and is doing amazing work. And that episode was with Claire Balding and lots of other women have come on and talked about their own experiences. And it feels like it's so much more in the public domain over the last few years than it ever was. And yet it would have been a perfect this morning kind of topic back in the day do you does, does that am I imagining history or was that something that just wasn't talked about back in the 90s I think and again it's a long time ago now but I think we were covering things like the menopause on this morning I and I, yes and in fact the more I think about it I can remember here and there I would I would have the piss ripped out of me as that bloke who talks about periods you know that nonsense and in certain quarters, I was mocked for that, um, and it was and it was seen as maybe I was sort of um, pretending, but I wasn't. It was it was all part all part of the legitimate kind of area of of coverage that this morning was was committed to, and as as the co presenter, I was committed to it too, and I knew that that made me a figure of fun a bit. Um, I, I understood that, but I didn't care, and that's actually one of the other great lessons which which still stands me in great good stead in all aspects of my career, including I'm a celebrity recently. And it's that very early on, I learned that if you take yourself remotely seriously, you're going to come unstuck. If you, if you think that just because you happen to do this slightly glamorous, weird job of being a television presenter, it confers some kind of specialness on you um, or some kind of dignity that mustn't be sort of lampooned or, or pricked, then you're on a hiding to nothing. Because the thing about, and I think it's a really healthy thing in this country, in this country, we do not take our television presenters seriously. We don't. We, uh, we mock them. We jeer at them. We, we tolerate them if, if, if they're lucky. But by and large, we rip it out of them. And that 
that comes with the job. And if you mind that, and if you kind of angst about that, and if you obsess about, you know, something that's been written about you, a headline, you know, the, the Mr. Period of television, all of that nonsense, if, if you let it get to you, you can have a miserable time. Did nothing ever upset you, though? Was there, were there not times? Because I totally agree with you, and I think we're both lucky that we started our careers without social media. Yeah. And so we didn't have that immediate True. feedback, yeah. you know? And by the time that was a thing, I didn't care anyway. But has there ever been a time where you, something has just pricked you in a way that you weren't expecting? Honestly, no. Um, you see, the journalist in me quite often can appreciate the reason that a story's been written the way it has. It may not be accurate. It may be detrimental to me, but I can sort of understand it. Uh, I've never sued for libel, and I've been libeled, you know, but I've never sued for libel. I've never complained to a watchdog group. I've always felt that it's better to take it on the chin and also remember that it's, I know it's, a, it's, it's, it's an old-fashioned phrase now, but it's, it's yesterday's fish and chip paper, you know. It all dies away again really quickly. And sometimes, two weeks later, you can, you can honestly, I found, I can look back and think, what was it I was so upset about two weeks? What was, it? What was that story about me? I can't even remember, you know. And if I can't remember, then, you know. What about your kids, though? They toughened up quite a lot. I think they saw that we were, we were okay with it. I think they saw quite a lot of the time we'd be laughing about it, you know. Um, all right, and some of that was put on uh, for their benefit. Um, but yeah, sometimes, you know, there'd be, God knows what the story of the, of, of the day was about me or Judy or both of us. And the kids would take their cue from us, as kids do. And if they could see that actually we weren't talking about it for the next three hours, but, you know, we deal with it, we'd maybe have a quick call with a press officer and put out a line that we thought we, we needed to, to to deal with something. And then we'd talk about what we were having for dinner, you know. And Judy and I were, were, were very keen on that. We 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 were very keen on, on, on not um, inflicting our, our work lives on the kids because, why? you know, again, that wouldn't be fair. And they're both very au fait with the reality of, of what it is mm. to be in the public eye. Well, I know both yeah. your children and I have to say what grounded, what you know, they're great, well aren't they? Well rounded, yeah. balanced people they are. You know, I You kind of get back almost what you've invested. Um, yeah, and and yeah. you get you get good professional <laughs> advice from your kids, which is I love. It's just fantastic. I have one more area I just quickly want to dip into with you, which is you've got a, a cracking head of hair, Richard Maidley, and you've got uh, somehow very, very few kind of uh, well, this is the men's prerogative, isn't it? But you know, your face has changed barely. Never had a period of time, I would say, where you've carried any weight. What's your uh, secret to eternal youth? Well, we, we started out talking about genetic luck. And I think certainly that's, that's, that's a large part of the answer to, to, to your you know, question and postulation. I mean, I've got my hair because I've got my hair. You know, I haven't had hair implants and everything. I'm occasionally accused of dyeing it blonde. Uh, that does annoy me, actually. That does annoy me because uh, it's not true. So you've never dyed it? You've never dyed it anyway? No, and I, know, and I don't expect you to believe me. No, you're very lucky. I know you've got looks... like a natural highlights. Well, what it is, we've, we're lucky. We've got a place in the south of France and we've got a little pool there. It's a little villa and we've got a pool and there are chemicals that keep the pool thing. And I find that when I'm in, in the south of France in the summer and I, I have a swim and I come out and the sun dries my hair, it, it lightens it. It just does. And if you put a brush through your hair, as I do, it tends to, high, it does highlight, you know. I mean, it dries yeah. and it dries and highlights. So by the time I come back, I, I can see it now. And, and, and you know, yeah. I, there's a bit, there's some blonde there. There's some, and it looks like, 
like I've dipped it in lemon juice or something and, and put it through. But I swear to God, I haven't. Apparently, lemon juice, you should just rely on water to highlight your hair in the sun. Oh, right. I was told by hairdressers. So you're doing the right thing. Oh, well, yeah, but it's not deliberate. I mean, you know, I've got no, to swim. No, but as in know. lemon uh, wouldn't be the good thing. No. So I don't, no, I don't do anything except have it cut. What about, what about exercise and, and food? Are you conscious of that? Yes, uh, because I, I do, as anybody who works in television knows, you'll know this, television puts weight on you. I mean, the moment you sit in front of a camera, you put on four or five pounds it, because you're in two dimensions, you're not in three. If you see somebody in, in, in reality, you're seeing around the corners, you're seeing around mm. the curves. Whereas mm. on television, it's flat, it's flat screen. So, you t- so facially, you put weight on um, straight away. So I've always been sort of vaguely aware of that. I've always been, again, lucky. I'm six foot two, got my dad's sort of height, although he, he carried too much weight and he had a heart attack and died when he was 49. Uh, he wasn't corpulent, but he was probably three pounds over and he was a smoker, although he'd, he'd, he'd recently given up, but he'd been a smoker most of his life. And I was always a bit worried about him. He was a bit fleshy and he wasn't very fit. He was an office worker. He was, a, he was an ex-journalist and he was a public relations officer for Ford and he had an unfit life. And although it was a terrible shock, he came home and died, basically. He came home for his lunch because uh, he, he worked just around the corner from uh, where he lived with my mother in Brentwood in Essex. And one afternoon he came home at one o'clock and my mum heard his key in the lock and it was taking a while for him to get it open and she she was putting her face on she always put her makeup on for him when he came home for his lunch and she went and opened the door and he was standing there looking awful and he said I think I'm having a heart attack and he said I've got terrible pains in my arm and I've got my chest feels like it's exploding and she said come in come in and like 10 seconds later he was dead um and it, that was a terrible so I was on my honeymoon I was I just got married for the first time then and oh it was it was it was an awful blow for all of us because we didn't see it coming and yet and yet and yet you know, obviously there had to be a post-mortem and it showed that his arteries had furred up and uh, they, he wasn't fit. And I, and I vowed then I had to watch it. I was going to have to watch my weight. And from that point on, I did. I make sure my cholesterol stays low. I do some exercises. I do push-ups and squats and I walk a lot and I cycle. I don't jog and I don't go to the gym, but I do walk a lot and I keep my, my aerobic fitness up and I do consciously keep my weight down by not eating too much. I don't pig out, you know, and I watch how much sugar I have. I try and watch how much alcohol I drink, but that's that's my definite downfall. I drink too much alcohol. And that's now Im- absolutely embedded and ingrained in my, my, my day-to-day life. It's not something I really even think about anymore. So far, so good. You know, low blood pressure, low cholesterol, get good ECG results every year. So, you know, you can, you can control those aspects of your life. And I have to say that my grandfather was a heavy smoker and I, and I smoked. The one thing I couldn't, I couldn't get on top of Everybody I knew as a journalist, a young journalist working in newspapers in the 70s and 80s, everybody smoked. You couldn't write a story without getting a cigarette on the go. So at one stage in my 20s, this is after Dad had died. I was 21 when Dad died. I was smoking 50 a day. I was getting through over... Yeah, I know. I was, I'm not exaggerating. I was getting through over two packs a day. You know, because like I say, you just... You, everybody chain smoked. And I didn't finally manage to stop smoking. Could proper, I mean, I, I stopped intermittently and then I always went back to them. But I didn't stop until I hit 40. And then I finally stopped because Judy and I interviewed, I don't know if you remember, and John Diamond, he was Nigella Lawson's first yes, husband. Yes, yes, he died. And he died of, of mouth cancer mm. and tongue cancer and throat cancer, all three really, because he smoked. It was directly smoking related. And he wrote an incredible blog in The Guardian yeah. in the last six months of his life, which made him briefly a, a celebrated journalist charting his death, his own death. And we had him on this morning um, about with about three months that he had left to go. And he'd already had a number of surgical procedures in his mouth. And by that time, he'd lost about half of his tongue and he'd lost 
the top part of the oesophagus, and he was in a bad way. I remember saying to him, and all of this, John, John, you've been very straight about this, is because, because you're a smoker. And he actually said, of course it fucking is, is what he said. <laughs> but because of his distortion, you couldn't really hear him swearing. He said, of course fucking is. And I remember I, I, I was going through one of my periods of secret smoking at that point, where I would lie to everybody. But I was addicted, and I would occasionally have a secret cigarette. And I remember at the end of that interview, it, was, it really shook me up. And he was roughly the same age as me as well. And I remember thanking my lucky stars that I hadn't yet suffered what he was suffering. And I went back to my dressing room at the end of the programme, and I reached up to my little hidey hole um, above my, 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 my wardrobe, and I pulled out my little packet of Benson and Hedges, which had about seven left in it. And not for the first time, I crumpled them up and flushed them down the loo. But I knew in a way that I'd never known before, that was it, that I was never going to go back to them because I was never going to end up like that. Cold um, turkey, nothing utter, else to help Utter me. cold turkey and I've never had a cigarette since. And now I'm 65, hopefully the risk factor has pretty much gone back to what it... You, you're always at elevated risk um, if you've smoked heavily as I did, but it does drop down to more or less, you know, acceptable levels. So I'm, I'm, I'm slightly more at risk of, of developing a cancer, but certainly I'm free of any heart disease, which is what killed my dad. Again, smoking is absolutely mm-hmm. something you can control. Well, Richard, it is an absolute joy to chat to you, as I knew it would be, and and to hear kind of some tales of your career, but also to see and hear kind of, you know, how you are now and understand how you got there. I think, you know, you're an inspiration for the midlifers to to see the energy that you still have for work. Because I think that's it, isn't it? Curiosity, energy and enthusiasm, you know, and you have all of those in abundance. Well, I'm I'm very blessed then, aren't I? Because I don't don't have to look for them. They're just there, you know. Keep doing what you do brilliantly. Looking forward to seeing you on Good Morning Britain soon. And um, I'm just sorry for all of us that you're not there in the castle in Wales yeah, about to be I named know, the, a, the king of, of the castle. But there you go. Never mind. Wasn't meant <laughs> yeah, to you, be. Would, you wouldn't have got to do this. I mean, you know, swings and <laughs> <Exactly>. roundabouts. <laughs> another, silver, another silver lining. <laughs> take care, Richard. Right, Thank you care, so, guys. so much. That's Thank great. You. Thank you. Normally, at this point in the Midpoint podcast, we'd have an expert. But I decided that as this is the last episode of the year, we should throw out the rule book. There isn't actually a rule book, by the way, although my family think I run their lives with a rule book. Actually, today's expert isn't an expert at all. It is a moment of inspiration, I hope, to see 2021 out because I've been really touched by the story of Charlie Starmer Smith and his dad, Nigel Starmer Smith. Charlie's dad, Nigel, is a legendary rugby commentator and a former England scrum half. And he's been living with the terrible effect of dementia, Alzheimer's actually, for a few years now. And the Starmer Smith family have been dealt some terrible blows throughout their lives. Charlie had already lived through the death of two siblings who both died before the age of 20. And earlier this year, his mother Ross died with cancer, but not before she gave Charlie the nudge he needed to release his song Spotlight, which is in aid of the Alzheimer's Society. Any profits he makes are going towards them. And I wanted to chat to Charlie because it's not what he does for a living. He works in travel. So it takes a lot of guts to put yourself out there, out of your comfort zone for such a positive and selfless reason. Charlie, thank you so much for coming on. Tell us a little bit about, well, first of all, I guess, tell us about your dad. Tell us about your childhood and what it was like having a dad like Nigel Starmer-Smith. I mean, I think I was pretty privileged as a young age. I was sort of at the sweet spot age-wise to be, most weekends, I was was travelling up and down the country with dad, going to all the great rugby grounds, uh, sitting on the floor of the commentary box, uh, watching all my heroes while my dad 
talking through the game, which I you know, pretty much ignored. Um, he'd march me into the changing rooms and I'd be on Will Carling's shoulders and meeting Rory Underwood, sort of open mouth, and wondering why people were either hurling some abuse at my dad or asking for his autograph. But it was, it, it was amazing times. And I think, um, you know, as I grew a bit older, I grew a bit more conscious that dad was in the public eye a bit and my friends would boo when the commentary was announced on TV. But it was, you know, it was a great, a great period of time. And, and I think, you know, brought me that love of rugby that I know dad's always had as well. So it, it was, you know, a wonderful childhood in that sense. Yeah, in that sense, you had, a, a, I imagine, a magical time, you know, having the door open to you in a world that a lot of, a lot of kids wouldn't have. And you clearly had a, a love for sport and a love for rugby yourself. Your family, though, had, had it tough in many ways, didn't they? You were dealt some pretty hard hands to deal with absolutely we I mean I was very unfortunate my sister died when when she was 16 uh, I was about 12 13 at the time so I was old enough to, to be very aware of I suppose the gaping hole that left in my parents lives my, my brother was a bit younger so I, I sort of took on the sort of more um, you know older brother trying to to look after him and, and get him through you know what was tough times we always looked up to my sister so much she, she was amazing um and then, yeah, I mean, in terms of, you know, lightning striking twice for the, for the, in the worst possible way, but when my brother was 19, he, he, he died as well. So my sister died from a rare blood condition, my brother from uh, T-cell non, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Totally unconnected, um, which was why, I suppose, in some ways even harder to accept that that, that could happen. Um, and I remember speaking uh, at my brother's funeral and, and, and you know, reflecting on, on how unfortunate we'd be, I suppose, in some ways, and, and just thinking at that time that, you know, no parent should have to, to, to bury one child, you know, absolutely shouldn't be two. And, and I remember saying that, you know, what I hoped was that the sun would shine for my parents in time. And I think, you know, what's really transpired is that it, it hasn't really. And I think that's, that's what's been hardest for, for me to accept, but, but also at the same time, I now have three young children and, uh, you know, and the, the fortitude my parents showed and the, you know, the can do and the opportunities they gave me it is something that I really want to give my children. So it's, you know, it, it, it can't be about wallowing in self-pity. It's got to be about moving on and, and, and providing an environment that's positive for them as well. And while lockdown kind of gave people, some people time, some people kind of, you know, changed paths in life and did different things. At this point in your family's life, your dad had already started to more than show signs of, of, of Alzheimer's. He was, it was a few years before that, wasn't it? But he was already being looked after in, in a home. And your mum, uh, it transpired, would develop bowel cancer. And she, she died of bowel cancer. Before she died, she gave you the inspiration to, to really not just pursue, but push your music out there, didn't she? She did. Uh, I mean, mum was an amazing woman. I mean, not just dealing with, with, with tragedies, but, you know, she spent you know, most of her life giving and encouraging people to do things and helping. It was sort of inbuilt in her DNA. I mean, no doubt in part, I think with both mum and dad, they never sat still. And that, and, you know, I think that energy and restlessness was in part to sort of shut out the darker stuff and, you know, kind of look to the light for, for want of a better phrase. But uh, music I found, particularly in lockdown, where I had a bit more time on my hands, was, was something that I turned back to. I hadn't played for a long, long time. And, yeah, um, so we should just say you're not a professional musician. I, I'm, I'm not a professional musician, no. So, so be kind with the music. But, uh, but uh, no, it's just something I dabbled with. And, and really, as much about the lyrics as the songs, I, I could find I could 
talk about things and get things down on, on paper that, you know, perhaps I'd struggle in person. And mum, by this time, yeah, as, you, as you mentioned, she had um, developed bowel cancer. It took a long time to get it diagnosed, uh, in part because it was hard to find, in part because of all the problems everyone's fell, faced with during COVID. But she was living with us um, and I think was the one person who could hear me droning on with my music in the, in the next door room and said, you know, as any mum does, oh, it's wonderful, you must send this in. And she had heard um, a radio segment on, on Five Live they were doing, and now that's what I call lockdown music, where they were inviting anyone and everyone who, who plays an instrument to send it in, and they'd pick a few to, to play on air. Obviously, I was 43, didn't want all my mates thinking I'm having a midlife crisis, so, so I was like, no, I'm not sending it in. And, and really, I suppose she, that the more ill she got, the more leverage she had over, over me, and it was the last week of entries where she said, please, for me, send one in. So I sent in this song called uh, spotlight uh, which is uh, about my dad and his his you know battle with dementia um and uh yeah i suppose the the, the rest was history in in some ways but it was um it was my mum who yeah absolutely gave me the impetus to do it and she she eventually obviously succumbed to the the cancer so she would be thrilled that you took her advice and then what has come from this now because uh, the song is out there that well there's there's a whole album of music isn't there um, but spotlight is the song that has been specifically chosen because of your links to the Alzheimer's charity. It is. And um, yeah, I mean, what, what I was so thankful was that the guys producing it. So I ended up um, doing it at Abbey Road. So it was an Abbey Road producer who, who got in touch. Wow. And, <laughs> Go straight to the yeah, top, Charlie. <laughs> uh, I know. I went from nothing to, to walking into Studio 3, which was a little bit intimidating. In fact, the only time I think in my life I walked into a room and they were setting it all up. And I was well aware that this is where Pink Floyd recorded their seminal album and all these amazing session musicians were in there. And I opened the door and sort of very quietly said, hello. And uh, no one turned. <laughs> Round and I just stepped back out the room and stood in the corridor for about three minutes hyperventilating and then and then went back in and said look you can do this and um so no that was an amazing experience and they, they were brilliant because they were very well aware that, that of my mum's condition so they really fast-tracked the production and actually I got to play the whole album sort of four days before she passed away so the poor the poor nurses in the hospice where she was at this point I think heard it wall to wall so I felt very sorry for them but they they smiled their way through it I I'm think. sure she loved it and Spotlight is all about your dad isn't it it is i mean dad's in 2015 with, with the first signs that you know he had dementia you know in a, in a similar job to yourself his job was all about imparting information in a concise and engaging way and in march he was commentating by that autumn he couldn't string a sentence together um so it sort of mentally and verbally went first and then physically came came later and it was at the physical point where he then had to go into a home because mum at sort of five foot one and a, a tiny bit couldn't couldn't cope physically um so the song really is about you know the the, the challenges i suppose of, of seeing someone slipping through your fingers almost mourning someone uh, who's still alive, which is the worst thing. I find myself sometimes talking about dad in the in the past when obviously he's still there, but it's it's a one-sided conversation. And and that, I think, is what's so tough. I mean, there's 850,000 people in this country with dementia and there's millions of people in, in my situation trying to make the best of, 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 you know, keeping some sort of relationship with that person. But it's it's really tough. And, and I've been amazed by the response that I've had. I mean, from hundreds and hundreds of people uh, just being so sympathetic, but also having the same you know, situation that I have. And that's really helped me and I hope in, you know, in some ways the song helps them. 
Yeah, and it's it's a beautiful song. All the more so, I think, because you know there is just so much heart and so much passion in there, and so many people have such fond memories of your father. You know, if you've ever kind of grew up and listening to the Muse theme tune to Rugby Special and kind of hearing his commentary and hearing his his tones, I think, gosh, yes, and this has happened to and. And it's that kind of feeling of fallibility. It's like these people that, you know, play for their country, do these amazing things and are held up on pedestals. And, you know, they too succumb to these terrible diseases. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think it's, it's not, you know, it's not quite a dirty secret, but it's one of those things where people talk about dementia, but, but sort of seeing it and actually seeing the effect it has on someone. And, you know, it was a very hard decision for me to, to let some TV cameras into film, Dad. But I felt it was so important because... If you see someone in their pomp and they're commentating or playing rugby, you need to see the other side as to, as to what happens. And, and that, I think, you know, is the stark reality of, of what dementia does. The one thing that really helped me was when dad moved into a home was that you feel, you know, very sorry for yourself and, and very hard done by. And suddenly you realise that all these people are in the same situation. And there's the, there's the, the first person I met was this amazing organist I mean world-renowned organist whose same gift had been taken away from him and there was a premiership footballer who was coming in visiting his mum who had been there for 10 years and you suddenly feel actually it's not just you know dad and commentary that's been robbed it's, it's been it's robbing everyone of, of, of their their heroes and the people they look up to so yeah that's why I wanted to give the money to, to Alzheimer's Society and also because of their sport United Against Dementia campaign they're doing which is very much looking into the links between sport and and dementia and you know I'm not for a second assuming at all that, that dad's dementia was caused by that we have it in the family a bit as well but it is clearly something that needs to be investigated. And if, you know, this can contribute in a small way, then, you know, hopefully that will help generations to come. And what about you, Charlie? What's what's it done for you this last few weeks and months in terms of your music being out there? How's it felt? Because, you know, if, if this podcast does anything, I hope that it gives people kind of inspiration in midlife to do different things and to kind of challenge themselves. And this is an enormous thing to go outside your comfort zone, isn't it? It, it is. I mean, I, I honestly would never have done it if it wasn't for everything else going on. Not just because a lot of the songs is about, per, you know, personal things. It's more, I, it, without that distraction, it would have been just too big a leap to think, you know, I'm, I'm 43, I'm going to be putting out an album. And, you know, and you immediately think of your immediate circle of people thinking he's lost it. You know, he's, he's you know, he hasn't bought the sports guy and he <laughs> thinks he's a rock star. And, um, and so, um, you know, and it, I, I think it's been fantastic for me. I mean, quite overwhelming at times, but um, I think it's given me a positive thing to, to, to focus on. Um, and, you know, people ask, how do you get through all the different tragedies you've had? And, you know, it's so awful for you that, that your mum and your brother and sister and that and your dad. But I don't look at it like that. I think anyone who's had any sort of tragedy, whether it's a single tragedy or multiple, it's not, it's not like it's cumulative. It, it's just something that... You know, I feel very strongly that my responsibility is as much to the people around me and my children as it is to, to my own, own well-being. And I think that's the attitude my parents gave me, which was to move on, be positive, you know, make a step forward. You'll have bad times, but there's always things around the corner to look forward to. And, and I hope, you know, showing I'm doing this music maybe may is an example of that. Yeah, and I think a lot of people who have been through things like you and maybe not as many, as you say, compounding, you know, kind of the losses that 
almost as a fear that they can't love in in a, in a, a whole way because of that tragedy. You know, I saw that with my own family, with my, my brother dying and how it affected my parents differently. And sadly, their marriage didn't survive. They had very different approaches to, to what happened. For you now, as a father of three children, how do you think those experiences and the way your parents coped has affected you as a parent? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. I think I am definitely... Uh, nervous about uh, if any of my children get a bit ill. I, I have that sort of internal thing, oh, could this be something, um, you know, more serious? My wife's brilliant. I mean, she's sort of, you know, absolutely fine, get on with it, stop, you know, st- stop being silly. Um, I, I'm very, very close to all three of them, and I think what I'm, what I'm trying to do is also not smother them in, in, in try, trying to protect them and put cotton wool around them, because, you know, my parents didn't do that to me. They were actually, you know, as much as it probably pained them that I'd go off traveling and go off to all these crazy adventures. I used to work in travel writing and definitely erred on the adventure side of things. And they let me do it. And I think, you know, you've got to let them be, be themselves and not let your tragedies define, you know, what they can and, and can't do. And um, that's the sort of the attitude I, I want to take. Which in itself is very brave, because as you say, the, the temptation to just pull them close and wrap them in cotton wool must be enormous. The urge must be enormous. But um, your parents gave you wings and you flew. And that is why you've been able to do this. So... Thank you so much, Charlie, for coming on. I think it's it's really um, such a, an inspirational thing to do, a brave thing to do. But um, I hope it gives you enormous comfort to know that you've touched so many people. Thank you, Gabby. I really appreciate it. Take care. Thanks so much, Gabby. Thanks. Cheers. Bye. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Charlie's family story is undeniably utterly tragic and yet and yet he's been able to force something positive into the world. What an example he is to his own children and to all of us and this has not been a vintage year for many people for many different reasons and the challenges as we know are going to go on into 2022 but I felt we needed a reminder to finish this series that there are always different ways of looking at our problems and to quote the great Betty Ford it'll be all right in the end and if it's not all right it's not the end. And Richard, thank you, Richard Maidley, for coming on this series of Midpoint. I was a student back in the 90s watching This Morning Daily, Richard and Judy, eating my breakfast. And it made me realise I really did want to work in telly when I watched those two. I could just tell they were ultimate pros. So having one of my kind of telly heroes on this series has been a joy. And of course, thank you to Lauren Armstrong Carter for producing from Rethink Audio and to all the contributors in this fourth series, to Solgar, of course, for being a tower of strength and support for me and for all of us with their range of over 300 vitamins and minerals and to Elvis, my brother-in-law in in Las Vegas who composed and performed our music. And thank you to all of you for listening, feeding back. I love hearing from you, so either visit the Facebook page or contact me on Instagram. Until next time, take care, stay safe and I'll see you soon.